0: These days we have got so many different pieces of technology in our lives. We just take things for granted, like smartphones and laptops and tablets. But of course, these devices didn't just miraculously appear in our world. They are the result of years of innovation and hard work as people designed and developed increasingly complex and advanced devices. And during this process, they built a number of of prototypes. They were very different from the the final product, but they share some of the common aspects and functions. So this guy here on the screen is a guy called Martin Cooper. In 1973, some of us remember 1973, don't we? Of course. (laughs) Just. Uh, Martin Cooper, he made the first handheld mobile phone call. On his very smart Dynatech phone. I'm sure that would be a very nice thing for you to have this year. Then a few years later, in 1976, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs built the Apple One. As the first computer built by that company that then became the biggest company in the world. Then in 1981, this wonderful machine, the Osborne One, was put on sale, is now considered the predecessor of the laptop, because it was claimed to be the first portable computer, although I don't know if I would like to carry that around with me all the time. Then, 1983, Apple created prototypes of tablets, including this one which was called Bashful. For some reason, the Snow White or something like that was the colour scheme or something like that anyway. And then around the same time, they created this prototype, which some see as the forerunner to the smartphone. Because it's got a touchscreen and it's got a phone as well, but obviously it's not quite the same as what we have. Now, things have moved on a long, a long way since then. But you can look back at those early devices And you can see aspects and characteristics of the things that we use today. We can see how they are prototypes of what we have. Now, in a way, that is like what we're going to look at today in the book of Hebrews. So far in this letter, the author has mentioned three times a guy called Melchizedek. This guy First appears in the Bible in the book of Genesis. Three verses are given to him. And then he pops up one more time in the book of Psalms. One verse is given to him. And so we'd be forgiven to think that this guy is just an incidental extra in the story of the Bible. But we'd be wrong. Instead, the writer of Hebrews knew that, like those old pieces of technology, he was a prototype of someone who was coming later, who'd be very different from him, and yet share some of the characteristics. So today we're going to learn a little bit about this guy, Melchizedek. Who he was, where he came from, what he did. And how this shows that Jesus is a better priest. So we're going to read Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 to 10. And Jude is going to come and he's going to read for us this morning. Thank you, Jude. Hebrews
1: chapter 7, verses 1 to 10 this Melchizedek was king of Salam and priest of God most high he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him and Abraham gave him a tent of everything first his name means king of righteousness then also king of Salam means king of peace without father or mother without genealogy without beginning of days or end of life like son of God he remains a priest forever just just think about how great he was. Even the patriarch per- per- Abraham gave him a tent of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests to collect a tent from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descending from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace the descent from Levi, yet he collected a tent from Abraham and blessed him who has the promises, and without the doubt, The lesser person is blessed by the dead. Greater, in one case, the tent is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say the Levi, who collects the tent, paid the tent to Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor.
0: Thank you very much, Stuart if we're going to understand the significance of Melchizedek and his connection to Jesus, we first of all need to understand who he was. So verse 1 tells us he was the king of Salem or Salem. I don't really know how to pronounce that word. Most people take Salem or Salem to mean Jerusalem. So Melchizedek was the king of that ancient city of Jerusalem the city that about a thousand years later, King David chose as his capital city. And as a result, he is called Peace, the King of Peace. Because Salem or Salem means peace. but like the Hebrew word Shalom. But the name Melchizedek means righteousness. So he is also the King of Righteousness. So here we have this guy, Melchizedek, the king of peace and the king of righteousness. But that's not all. He was also priest of God Most High. He was someone who didn't only worship the one true and living God, he also was a mediator between God and his people. He represented God to his people and his people to God. So Melchizedek was an ancient priest-king. Someone who was a ruler as well as a representative for his people. But Melchizedek was more than that. Because of some of the things that the book of Hebrews writes about him, some people think that he was more than just a human being. In fact, some people have suggested that he was a Christophany. I don't know if you've ever heard that word before, but Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus appearing in human form on this earth before he was born in Bethlehem, like we remember at Christmas. But I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He did not say that Melchizedek is the Son of God. But rather, in particular ways, he is like the Son of God. And so I think it's better to see Melchizedek as what is called a type. A type of Christ. A type is a special example, a symbol, or a picture, that God designed beforehand, and placed in history, to point forward, to who Jesus would be. Like a prototype, in a sense. A preview, a trailer, of Jesus. Now these types of of Christ can be people. People. The first one in the Bible, uh, I would say, is Adam. Adam who was a pattern of the one to come, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Adam is the first human being. He failed when he was tempted by the devil. And so death came to all who are in Adam. Jesus too was tempted by the devil. But he overcame And so those who trust in him will have life in all its fullness. There's other types of Christ uh, people in the Bible. So Abel, or Joseph, or Moses, or David, or Solomon, or Elijah, or Jonah. None of these people are perfect previews of Jesus. They all fall short of who Jesus really is. But in different ways they point to Jesus. And they reveal a little bit about who he is or what he was going to do. But that's not just true about people. It's also true about events or objects or religious rituals or institutions. Things like the ark or the passover or manna, or the bronze snake, or the tabernacle, or the Sabbath, or the temple. Listen to what Paul wrote about all of these things in Colossians chapter 2. He said this, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or Sabbath day, Okay? Some people were criticising people for not keeping all of these rules and rituals of the Old Testament. But then he, Paul goes on to say, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. All of these things that we can read about in the Old Testament, they were the prototypes. Yes, they were good gifts from God. They revealed who God is and they enabled people to relate to God. But as good as they were, they were not the real thing. They're only a shadow pointing forward to someone who is greater, better, someone who's more wonderful. They're pointing forward to Jesus. That's why we don't need to do all those things that we read about in the Old Testament today. Because if we have the ultimate reality, then we don't really need the prototype. And I think this really helps us to understand how we should read the Bible. It's a really important principle, I think. When Jesus met the two on the road to, the, the, uh, to the Emmaus, on that first resurrection morning, it says that I'm beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As Jesus met those two disciples and explained to them about who he really was and what he came to do, he looked back into the Old Testament and pointed out all the different ways that the Old Testament pointed forward to him. So that means it's really important for us to read the whole of the Bible. There are some Christians who ignore the Old Testament in favour of the New. Or who say, oh well, it's not really that important. Or we don't need to really think about that, because that's all been superseded. But if they do that, they're going to miss out on a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. Because all of the Bible points to Jesus. But it also helps us to know how to read the Bible. Not just that we should read it all, but how to read it. Because we need to make sure that we don't make the same mistake as the Pharisees did. This is what Jesus said about the Pharisees in John chapter 5. He said this, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The Pharisees were people who were absolutely committed to studying their scriptures. But it's tragic, isn't it, that they missed the whole point of it. It was supposed to point them to Jesus. So that they could trust in Jesus. So they could have life in Jesus. And so if we are going to understand the Bible properly we need to see that all of its purpose is to help us to get to know Jesus. Who He is and what He has done so that we will put our faith in Him. That's the point of the Scriptures. And that's the case with Melchizedek. As a priest king of righteousness and of peace, Melchizedek points forward to Jesus As the ultimate priest, King. If you've been with us, you'll know that Hebrews already has pointed forward to Jesus as being King. When Jesus ascended into heaven, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. And so, Hebrews 2 says, He is now crowned with glory and honour. Jesus is the King. But he's also the priest that we need because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and we'll see that in more detail as we go through the rest of the book of Hebrews we'll see how Jesus as our priest has made the ultimate sacrifice for our sins and so if we put our faith in him then he will make us righteous before God And so that we can have peace with Him. This is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have been declared righteous through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful gift Jesus wants to give us. He wants to dress us this morning in His righteousness so we can be reconciled to God so that we can be friends with God so that we can be connected to Him and live with Him forever so Melchizedek is not a guy just from the distant past today he points to Jesus as the King of righteousness and peace who laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins Jesus. Seems to work it now. Technical difficulties. But it's not just who Melchizedek is that tells us something about Jesus, it's also where he's from. Have a look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or ends of, end of life. Now, this didn't mean, doesn't mean that Melchizedek literally had no parents, or no ancestry, or no birthday, or no death. Rather, the writer is just saying that these things are not recorded in Scripture. Often, as you know, when we will are introduced in the Bible... They're introduced as the son or daughter of someone. Or from a certain tribe or nation. Often their, their, their time of birth or their death is noted. But none of those things are mentioned for Melchizedek. He just appears in the scriptures and then disappears. is never mentioned again. And so in a sense, he is timeless. As verse 3 says, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So even the silence of Scripture points forward to Jesus. This is how carefully God has inspired his word. The end of Melchizedek's priesthood is not recorded. And so he points forward to Jesus who has a priesthood that never ends. That is permanent, as we'll see next week in verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So that's who Melchizedek is. That's where he's from. But what did he do? What did this guy do? Well, for that we need to go back to Genesis chapter 14. If you want to have a, uh, turn your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 14, it will help us to see what this guy did. The king of so- Sodom and his four allies were attacked and defeated by an alliance of four powerful eastern kings, led by a guy called King Kederleomer. Everyone in the city of Sodom was captured. And that included Lot, Abraham's nephew, who had moved into that wicked, evil city. And as a result, he and his whole family were taken captive. They were prisoners of war. But when Abraham heard the news, he immediately sprung into action. He gathered together 318 of his of men in his own household, and he pursued the attackers, and he rescued all of those prisoners. So verse 16 of, of Genesis 14 says this. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative law and his possessions together with the women and the other people. It was an amazing rescue mission headed up by Abraham. But it was on his way back with everyone that Abraham met this guy called Melchizedek. So let's read Genesis 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek understood what had just happened. He realized that this victory was not because of Abraham and his men's superior strength or skill. Instead, he recognized that this was God's victory. This is why he blessed God, who delivered Abraham's enemies into his hands. But Melchizedek didn't just bless God, he also blessed Abraham. He prayed for God to continue to to honour Abraham, to look after him, to watch over him, to ensure his well-being. And the writer of Hebrews makes a critical comment about this. Hebrews 7 again, verse 7. Without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Now this would have been a really challenging concept for the first readers of this letter. That's because most of them were were Jewish people as as we've seen. And Abraham was one of the greatest patriarchs of that nation. He was re- respected as an, an, an amazing man of faith. But here he was right, the writer was claiming that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And he proved it with what happened next. So back to Genesis 14, verse 20. Then Abraham gave him a tenth. Of everything. Now giving a tenth, or or a tithe as it's sometimes called, became part of the religious life of the nation of Israel. Hebrews 7 and 5 says, The law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. That was their inheritance from the Lord. The Levites, they didn't get part of the land of Canaan when it was divided up among the, the other tribes. Instead, they were set apart to serve in the tabernacle and then later in the, in the temple. And so to provide for them and to provide for the poor, the other tribes, they were to give a tenth, a tithe of their income to the Levites. But here, Abraham gave a tenth of all the plunder that he got as when, he, when he rescued These people, And he gave it to Melchizedek. That was Abram's expression of gratitude to God for the victory that he just had had been given. But it was also a recognition of Melchizedek's special role and his calling as a priest of God. So the writer says, verse 4 of Hebrews 7, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the blunder. Melchizedek must have been someone really great for Abraham to give him this tithe. So why is that important? Why is that important? Why would it be important to the writer of Hebrews and the initial readers? Why is it important to us? Well, I hope you remember that the initial readers of this letter, they were struggling in their Christian lives. Maybe because of the persecution that some of them were experiencing. Or maybe just the struggle that they were going through because of their being being a follower of Jesus. Some of them were being tempted to give up. To walk away from following Jesus and go back to the Judaism that they'd come from. Back to the Old Testament, the old covenant way to relate to God. Back to the the priests and the tabernacle the temple and the sacrifices and all of that. But this passage shows that Melchizedek was a superior priest to those Levitical priests of Judaism. That's because, verse 10, when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Now, he doesn't mean literally, okay? Of course. But Levi was in the the body of his ancestor, in the sense that Levi came from Abraham, because Levi was his great-grandson. And so he says in verse 9, One might even say that Levi paid the tenth to Abraham. Through Abraham. So it wasn't just Abraham that showed deference to Melchizedek. And respect for Melchizedek's unique service for God. It was Levi, Abraham's great grandson, that also did that. And that demonstrates that Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priests of Judaism. And what difference should that make to the readers of this letter? Well, it means that if Jesus has become a high priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek, then Jesus is also a better priest than those Levitical priests. His role, his ministry, his sacrifices, everything that he does is superior, is better than any role or ministry that is in within Judaism. And not only that, as we've seen, his ministry is going to last forever. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die. That's the Levites. But in the other case, by him who's declared to be a living. We're going to see that in much more detail next week. The Levitical priests, they only served until they died. But Melchizedek was without beginning or end of days. In a sense, he's a priest forever, which is a picture of Jesus' permanent priesthood, one that will last forever. So here's the message of this passage. If we are faced with the choice between following Christ or going back to Judaism, back to the old covenant ways of approaching God, back to having a a special temple, a tabernacle, having priests in special robes, offering special sacrifices, why would we want to turn away and go back to all of that? And Jesus is such a better priest. Why would we want to go to any other religious system? Any other mediator between God and man? Any other sacrifice for our sins? Because Jesus is better than them all. Jesus is all that we need. Prototypes, they're never as good as the final product. But looking at them, we can see aspects and characteristics of the things that we have today. And that's what this guy Melchizedek does for us. In some ways, he resembles Jesus and points to the wonderful truth that Jesus is a better priest. Because he's the ultimate priest king. Who can declare us righteous in God's sight and bring us into peace with God. And he is the ever-living one who always lives to intercede for us. So he's able to save us completely. This is what God has pointed towards throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And this is the reality that has now been revealed to us within the New so let's fix our eyes on Jesus and put our trust in Him and in Him alone because Jesus is all that we need